by the door. Where's my cell phone? I can't find it. It's by the coffee, by the door. Is every, where is everything that I need? Is it all there? Everything that you need is by the door. I'll see you later. All right. here in the morning you're getting ready for work or for whatever you have to do that day and everything's just frustrating you don't know where anything is you can't find all the stuff you need and it's probably right where you left it but still it's frustrating it seems like these days are the worst on Monday mornings well maybe not this Monday morning since it's Labor Day but Monday mornings seem to be the worst but can you explain to me this why on Labor Day do we not labor? It doesn't make, it, that has never made sense to me. Why the one day of the year that we call Labor Day, we don't actually do any work? Shouldn't Labor Day mean that you stay at work a little bit longer instead of getting a day off? Anyway, why do we hate Mondays? I used to hate Mondays. I still do, but not as much. Mostly because it means going to work or it means getting back to that part of the week that we don't necessarily like. For most people, this is a dread. People don't like work, and well, that's why we call it work, and why we get paid for it instead of, getting, instead of not getting paid for it and doing something else. Then it would be called fun or it would be called play. But it's not that way for everybody. There are some people that look forward to Mondays and look forward to getting back in the office or the place of business and getting going. I am not one of those people. I enjoy my weekends. And it used to be even more so. I used to hate Monday. I dread it. I dread getting up that early and going and sitting in the office all day and just talking to the same people that I talk to every day and knowing what to expect and knowing what was going to be there. And Mondays represent work. And we think that work is just about us, just about getting money just about doing what we can. And that's why we don't like it, because it's something we have to do to get something else. What if our attitude was different? What if our attitude wasn't that we're working for ourselves, but we're working for something real, for something that's, that's really big? This morning, I had the, uh, the news on as I was getting ready, and there was an article on there about Southwest Airlines. And they were talking about how this airline, despite every other airline doing so poorly and doing so bad, how they're doing so well. They've never had to have cutbacks. They had to sell one plane when they were just starting. But other than that, everything has been on an uphill climb. One of the things they said that they did to do this is they have all the people that work there focused on one goal. All the people there are focused on doing one thing. Every day they come into work, they're all working for that one thing. And they say that most successful companies that have good relationships with their employees, that's what they do. They have one thing and every employee is devoted to that goal. And we're gonna talk about that this morning. What is our goal as Christians? And how can we be ready? It says up here, are you ready? And in the bulletin, it says, are you ready for Monday? I don't mean Labor Day. I mean your average, ordinary Monday. Are you ready to work as a Christian? Something we don't like to talk about, but that's what we're going to talk about today. Let's get started with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this day. 
And I thank you that it's a holiday weekend so that we don't have to go into work on Monday. But I ask that you be with each person here today. Be with us as we dig into your word and as we try to learn more about you and more about how we relate to you. Be with each person here. Open their hearts, open their minds, and open their ears. And be with me and just use me to speak your words to them this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned before, we have work to do as a Christian. Now, wait a minute. We don't like to hear this all the time because we say, wait a minute, I'm a Christian and I serve an all-powerful God. Can't he handle it on his own? I mean, if he's everywhere and all-powerful and all-knowing, what does he need my help for? I'm just, I'm just me. And I do a lot of things wrong and, and mess a lot of things up. Why would God use me? Throughout the Bible, if we look, God uses all kinds of people that are just like us. People that make mistakes, people that do things wrong, people that have messed up. And we've talked about those before, but this is what God likes to do to show us His power. He says, I'm going to take these imperfect things, these jars of clay that are easily broken, that are easily messed up, and I'm going to use those to do great things. And He wants to use us today. He wants to put us to work for Him today. So what kind of work does He want us to do? In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20, we find the great commission of Jesus. It's in the book of Matthew, right before He's ascended into heaven, He says this to His followers. He basically gives us a job description. He says, it says in Matthew 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's talking about authority there. So this is like your employer telling you what to do. He's got authority. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. That's our job right there as Christians. Jesus gives it to us plain. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that Jesus is telling me that I have to do stuff? And this doesn't sound easy. All nations? I've never left Cincinnati. How am I supposed to talk to all nations? And make disciples, baptize people, teach people? I don't know how to do that. I'm just, I'm just me. And didn't Jesus say that his yoke was easy and his burden was light? This doesn't sound easy. This doesn't sound light. This sounds hard and heavy. That's what I want. I want the light burden and the light yoke, and I just want everything to be easy. But it's important to remember that even though Jesus says it's easy, he still says there is a yoke. And other times, he says... If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and daily take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is going to make the way easier, but we've got some work to do along the way. Today we're going to talk about doing that work. How do we, just simple individuals, how do we do this stuff? How do we make disciples? How do we get people to a point where they're ready to be baptized? How do we teach them? 
Because there's also a promise in that job description. It says, you do this stuff, and I'm going to be right there with you. Even to the very end. Isn't that what we want? I know that's what I want. I want to be right there, arm in arm with Jesus, the whole time. So I want to be doing what He wants me to do. And that takes preparation. This message is called, Are You Ready for Monday? And we're going to talk about the things that we do to get ready for that so we can carry it out. I remember when I was working in an office, Sundays could be kind of funny at my house when I would do things to get ready for the, week, for the work week. Because I knew that during the week I would be very busy. And I'd be at work late and I'd have to be there early and I'd have other things to do in the evenings and things to do in the morning before work. So I wanted to take care of everything I could on Sunday before Monday got there and things got real busy. So what I would do, I would cook a lot. And um, I used to, in the afternoons at work, get real hungry. So I would make, I would want some snack, but I want something that would be good for me. So I would go like to Sam's Club or to Kroger when they have those big family packs and get a whole bunch of chicken breasts and fire up the grill and grill like six chicken breasts on Sunday afternoon. Now there's no way I could eat six chicken breasts on Sunday afternoon, but I would cut them up and make little chicken fingers out of them and put them all in little, I'd have a, a stack when I was done of Tupperware containers in the refrigerator just one for each day of the week that I would take with me and eat in the afternoons. And I'd do the same thing for my lunch. I'd go and I'd get a loaf of bread and take out the whole loaf of bread and I'd cover my countertop with bread. There'd just be slices up and down the countertop. And I'd get out the tub of butter and I'd butter each one and then I'd get out the mustard and I'd put mustard on each one and then I'd get out the big thing of ham and put ham and then I'd get out the big thing of cheese and put cheese and then I'd put them all together and I'd have this table full of sandwiches and I'd bag them all up and I'd put them all in the brown paper bags and I'd write my name on them. And if you looked in my refrigerator on Sunday night, you'd think I was some kind of crazy person because there you have all this Tupperware that just has chicken in it. They would be my afternoon snack or my right after work snack. And then you'd have all these bags of lunches that were all lined up and they all had my name on them. What was wrong with me? But I knew that to get ready for that week, for all the things that I had to do, I had to be prepared ahead of time. Because if I didn't do that, if I didn't go and do all this work, then I'd be spending extra money eating in the cafeteria, which was a ripoff at work. It was too expensive and the food wasn't that good, so I wasn't going to do that. And then, if I didn't have something good to eat in the afternoon, I'd be going to the vending machine and having a Snickers bar or something, and I didn't want to do that. So I had to work ahead of time, so I got things done right during the week. And we, as Christians, have to do the same thing. We have to be ready to face this job that Jesus wants us to do. We've got things to do and, and some stuff to get ready for. And you know what? There's things coming up at the church here that we have some preparation to do for. Larry's doing a revival here in October. And we have to get ready now for that revival. If we wait until October, it's too late. And then we're going to do a program right before that and a program right after that to kind of talk about what happens at the revival and to talk about what we can do to be a part of that and we have to get ready now to start that and part of that is getting people here let me ask you why do you go to the church you go to which is here or why have you gone to other churches in the past the institute 
of American Church Growth did a study of 10,000 people and asked them, 10,000 people who regularly go to church, and asked them why they go to the church they go to, why they started going there. 3% said, I had a special need that this church could meet. And that would be something like a support group or some special program that they offered if it, they had little kids and they had a MOPS program to take care of them. 3%. All right, 3%. I just walked in, saw the church there, said, hey, I'm not doing anything on Sunday morning, and they just walked in. Another 3%. Jim, you're going to like this one. I like the minister. 6%. Look at that. It's twice as much as those other two. It's important to have a minister that people like. You know, That's a big responsibility for us, 6%. I visited there, 1%. Now this would include people who had, visited, who had gone on vacation somewhere or was, were somewhere for a business weekend or something, wound up going to a church and then moved there later and went there. So 1%. Not too many. I like the Bible classes, 5%. This is another big one. Look at that. 6% I like the minister. 5% I like the Bible classes. Those are the big hitters so far. I like the minister and I like the Bible classes. I attended a gospel meeting. Half of a percent. See, here's the thing. If people who just go to a gospel meeting for the fun of it, or what we would call a revival, they're people who already have a church, people who already know God. Most people who don't have a church or don't know God don't see a, a sign for a revival meeting and say, hmm, maybe I should check that out, because somewhere, sometime, they've already got a bad idea about the church. So if we add up that 3%, 3%, 6%, 1%, 5%, and half a percent, what about all the other people in church? How did they get there? Oh. Three, three more percent said they liked the programs. Forgot one. Check this one out. A friend or relative invited me. 79%. For those of you who aren't good at math, that's almost everybody. Most people at any given church are there because someone invited them. Not just some random stranger, a friend or a relative. That's why people come to church. Not because there's a pretty building. Not because they hear the preacher as they're walking by and they decide to come in. Not because they have great Bible studies. People come to church because someone that they care about, a friend or a relative, invites them. If you want to make disciples, if you want to baptize people, if you want to teach them everything, it starts right here. You have to invite them. You have to care enough about them to invite them. If you've been here before, you've probably heard me say that everything in this book is about loving God and loving others. Jesus says, if, if you love me, do what I say. What does he say? He says, make disciples, baptize people, teach them, invite them. If you love others, you're going to want them to be in heaven. You're going to want them to know God. You're going to invite them. Again, it all comes down to those two things. So what do we do to make this easier? How do we start on this rule? Because if you just walk out and start saying to people, hey, come to church in this neighborhood, whew, 
And as time has gone on, that has been less and less effective. Because people aren't as open to church anymore as they used to be. People don't just say, hmm, maybe that's the solution to my problems. I wish it was that way. It'd make our job a lot easier. But there's way too many things out there all the time that tell them church isn't the answer. It says money's the answer, or power's the answer, or this car is the answer. That's what's going to make you happy. That's what's going to solve your problems. Voting for this politician is the answer. But we know the answer. And the only way that we're going to get people to believe us is if we show them we care about them and that we want to share with them. We don't want to force it on them, we want to share it with them. Because it's something that has an impact on us, we want to have an impact on them. So who do we share this with? In Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38, it talks about Jesus. It says, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I want to look at the beginning of that. It said, Jesus looked out on the people and he had compassion on them. Do we have compassion today on non-believers, on the people that really need Jesus? Or are those the people that we say, oh, Figures. What do you expect? They're no good. They don't know anything. They don't know God. Why should I even deal with them? These are the people that Jesus looked out on, and that's not what he said. When he saw Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the scum of the earth, climb up in a tree to see him, he said, Hey, you. He didn't say, Clean up your act. He didn't say, Get it together. He didn't say, start doing the right things. He said, you and me, we're going to go out to lunch. I'm coming to your house. He had compassion on him. He showed him that he cared about him. Do we have that attitude today? Do we see people who, who don't believe and say, they really need my help. I really feel bad that they're stuck in this situation. Each one of you here knows people that needs your compassion. You know people that aren't Christians. Every person here today, I want you to think of five people. Five people that you know in your life that aren't Christians. Right now, go ahead, think. I'm going to take a minute and just want you to think. Five people in your life who aren't Christians, who need to hear the gospel. People who you care about, who you're compassionate about. Think about those five people. You got your five people? If you look in your bulletin under the prayer list, you'll see five blank lines.
If you've got a pen or pencil, I want you to write their names in there in those five blank lines. And there's a reason why it's under the prayer list. The first thing that we're doing right now is we're preparing and planning. Who are the people in my life that need to hear the gospel? These five people, they're your plan. Where do you see these people? Where do you talk to these people? What's your relationship like with these people? Do they know that you have compassion for them like Jesus had compassion for people? Do you see them as being harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? How many people do we know like that? Sheep without a shepherd. People who are just going through life with no direction, with no place to go, no goals. Are we like that? We prepared and we planned. And if we look in Colossians chapter 4, we get a good idea of what comes next. Colossians chapter 4, Paul's writing to the Colossians, and he gives them some instructions. In the NIV, this little section Verses 2 through 6 is called Further Instructions. And in here, we kind of get an interesting glimpse of what Paul's asking people to do and also what Paul himself is doing. And there it says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Next thing we have to do, you've got your plan. We've prepared the plan. You've got your five people. We have to pray. And then pray some more. And then pray some more. And I could have filled this whole screen up with the word pray, and it still would not have been overstating the importance of our prayers. So what do we have to pray for? Let's look at what Paul talks about. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. So saying it three times, that's a minimum. Devote yourselves to prayer. Being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too. Paul's telling the people of Colossae to pray for him. So the first thing we have to do is pray for others. Pray for the other people in the church. Because you know what? They're going to be facing the same things that you're facing. They're going to go home and see this list and say, man, how do I talk to this person? How do I show them that I love them? They're going to be doing the same thing. And they're going to want your prayers when they're doing that. So pray for other people. Going on in verse 3, he says, Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Pray for opportunity. When we're with those people on our list, or even strangers, and they say something like, I just don't know what to do right now. I have no one to turn to. I have all these questions that don't have any answers. 
That is an opportunity. Because you know people they can turn to. You know people who have answers. Even if you don't feel like you have answers, you know people who do. And if you look to your left and you look to your right, it's the other people that are sitting here this morning. So that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Pray for outside help. Because we can't do it on our own. Here's Paul, this great Apostle Paul, who stands in front of hundreds of people, and stands in front of important political leaders and government figures, and he says, pray for me, so that I do this the right way. Because I need God's help to do this the right way. We all need God's help to do this the right way. And if you feel like you can't do it, like you say, oh, George, that's just out of my league this morning. Talking to other people about God, mm, out of my comfort zone. Good. It should be. Because it's out of everyone's comfort zone. Because we can't do it on our own. We need God's outside help in order to get this done and to do it properly. And that's something that we need to pray for. For God to help us out with this situation. So once we've planned and once we've prayed, what comes next? This might be the difficult time point. But here we get to what Paul goes on in, in Colossians. He says, Be wise in the way you act toward others. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Be wise in the way you act toward others. What does that mean, be wise in the way you act toward others? Most of the time when we talk about how we act toward others, we say, treat them nice, treat them with love, Treat them with respect. But Paul says, be wise. He's talking about a personal relationship here. And a relationship that also has a goal. Because you want to show these people God's love in a personal way. And that takes wisdom. And what's wisdom? Wisdom is doing the right thing even though on the face, it might not seem like the right thing. That might be confusing. Wisdom means taking the hit now for the bigger payoff later. If we're not wise, if we're fools, we do exactly what we want now. Instant gratification. When we act foolish, we see we're watching TV late at night and see that commercial for the Whopper at Burger King. We say, oh, I need one of those now. And you go to Burger King right before they close at 11 o'clock at night and get a Whopper. Even though you know, first of all, you shouldn't eat that late. Second of all, you shouldn't eat that Whopper because there's nothing good for you in there. And third of all, that eating all that grease and cheese and everything right before you go to bed, at least for me, I'm not going to get a good night's sleep. And I'm not going to feel good in the morning. That's foolish. Wise is seeing that commercial and saying, mmm, I feel that little hunger pang now. And that Whopper looks really good on the commercial. But I know that if I went to Burger King and opened up that wrapper, I'm going to get this soggy bun with brown lettuce and cheese that 
only covers half of the burger with ketchup and mustard sliding off the sides, it's not going to be what I want. It's disgusting. That's wisdom, is knowing that that advertisement isn't the truth. So how do we be wise with people? How do we be wise in our relationship with people? I'm going to tell you a little secret, something that I've learned in my 28 years of life. People are going to do things that you don't like. They're going to rub you the wrong way. They're going to frustrate you. And they're going to make you want to say, just knock it off. Just get out of here. But is that the wise thing to say? Or is the wise thing to take a step back and say, all right, they're a little annoying now. But I'm not in this for me. I'm going to love them even though they're annoying. I'm going to put up with these little foibles so that we can have a relationship, so they know that I care about them even though. That's being wise in your relationship. Taking the most of every opportunity. There are opportunities here at the church. You have opportunities with people. The revival coming up is one of those opportunities. And there'll be other ones that we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. We need to make a personal petition. Personal meaning we already have a relationship. And petition, a petition is a formal invitation. What do I mean by that? A formal invitation. It's one thing if you say to somebody, hey, you should come to church sometime. It's really easy for them to say, yeah, I'll come to church sometime. See you later. And that's the end. And I've done that. And you know what? Those people don't come to church. A petition is a formal invitation. And that means invite them to a specific service at a specific time. Meet them. Pick them up. Bring them. You know what the hardest thing for people when they come to a church is? Coming through the door. Once they get in here, it's okay. Pulling in the parking lot, it's okay. It's coming through that door. If you want to get somebody, if you want to invite somebody and have them actually come here and show up, do one of two things. Number one, pick them up and bring them yourself. That way they know you're going to be with them. They know they won't have to do it by themselves. Number two, promise them you will meet them in the parking lot. The most important thing is then you have to do it. Because if you tell them you're going to meet them in the parking lot and they don't see you waiting with open arms in the parking lot, they're still in their car, they're going to turn around and head away. That means even if it's raining, even if it's snowing, even if it's hot, you're going to be waiting there in the parking lot for them. That's a personal petition. Say, hey, we're having a revival on the 19th of October. I want you to be there. I think that some of the problems that we've discussed, you'll find some of the answers there. Would you like me to give you a ride? I would love to give you a ride. Yeah, I know that you live an hour in the other direction from church, and I only live five minutes away, but it would be my pleasure to give you a ride. Oh, you don't like riding in my car? That's okay. I'll meet you in the parking lot. I'll have one of my friends save us seats so that we'll have a good place to sit inside. I'll meet you in the parking lot. I'll be waiting there for you. Not only does this make it easier on them to come and visit, it also, again, shows that you care. You're willing to go out of your way to get them there. You're willing to wait in the parking lot for them so they don't have to come in inside. 
It shows how much you care about them being there. To make the most of those opportunities. And still, this can seem daunting. It seems like, alright, I get them here, then, then what happens? What do I do? What, where do I go from there? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes, I planted the seed. So what we're talking about today is planting seeds. Just getting that little thought into people's minds or getting them in here, getting things started. And the great part about this little passage is we don't have to do all the work. In fact, we barely do any of the work. Paul says, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. Apollos, it doesn't matter who Apollos is in this verse. Apollos could be anybody else in this room or somebody that we don't even know. Means that you do your part and somebody else steps in and does a little bit more. And here's where it gets great. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. We don't know how seeds grow. We give them water, we give them light, we put them in the dirt. So there's nothing else that you do. You don't light a fuse. You don't flick a switch. You put some water, you put some dirt, and all of a sudden, it grows. God does that part. The same thing with people. We can put them in the right place, we can put them in the right presence, but God's going to do the work. God's going to do the work in their heart. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. It's not us doing the work. We go there and we've talked about, are you ready for Monday, are you ready to do work? But God's the one doing the real work. He's the one behind the scenes changing hearts making people see the truth and understand His truth. That's where the magic happens. Not when somebody comes through the door or not because we shook their hands the right way or they like the bathrooms. It's God. We just have to bring them together and let God work on them. And they're going to thank you afterwards. Matthew 5, chapter, verse 13, says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. I've often wondered about that. Why salt? Why the salt of the earth? And I've heard professors in books say it's, it's something important for them, and they used it per, to preserve food, and they used it as one of their main seasonings, and and all this stuff. But here's the thing. Salt makes you thirsty. And who's Jesus? What did Jesus tell the woman at the well? I'll give you living water so that you'll never thirst again. We are the salt to make people thirsty. We do that by loving them and showing them a better way. And then bringing them to the water. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. There are times in our life when we feel really salty. I'm guessing there's a time in each one of your lives when you felt really salty. When you first became a Christian, when you first heard the good news and said, Wow, God loves me. These people at church, they, they care about me. I want to share this with people. But as time goes on, we start to be a little less salty. 
we start to say, well, I know God loves me. Those people still care about me. And that's good enough. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Just like salt, what does light do? It pushes away the darkness, yes, but it also lets people see the way. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Your salt and your light. That's what we are as Christians. Jesus said it right here. We are salt and we are light. It's our job to make people thirsty and it's our job to show people the way. And we do that by picking out these people. By getting to know people. By having a relationship with people. By having compassion on the lost. And by praying for them. And I want you to put their names on the prayer list because I think that we just use prayer sometimes in the wrong way. If we look at Jesus' example of prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know it. You know what he doesn't pray for in there? Sick people. Doesn't come up. He doesn't say, give us this day our daily bread and be with Matthew because he has a cold. It's not in there. Yet, so many times, that's all we do with prayer is say, God, this person's sick, and this person's sick, and that person's sick, and this person's in the hospital. That's important, but that's not all of what prayer is. Jesus prays that things on earth might be like they are in heaven. When was the last time we prayed that? I don't know if I've ever prayed that. What are things like in heaven? Everyone in heaven loves God. Everyone in heaven worships God. If we want earth to be like heaven, we've got to do our part and go out and help make that happen. Help people realize that we need to worship God, that we need to love God. And to do that, to get that started, we need that personal relationship and a formal invitation. Just get the ball rolling. Plant that seed. And I mentioned the revival. We're going to have a program coming up before that called Life on Loan, which is going to be a whole bunch of more things like this, of how to do different things and how to live your life the way that God wants you to. And once we get that, leading up to that, that's another thing you can invite people to on Sundays or on Wednesdays. Say, come, we're starting this program. I think it would really help you out. We're going to sing our closing song, It's Just As I Am. As I mentioned before, Jesus wants us the way that we are. We can go out and serve Him the way that we are. It doesn't matter the mistakes we've made or the problems that we have. Because we're not the ones doing all the work. We plant the seeds. God's the one doing the work. So I'm challenging you this week. You've got a list of five people, either in your head or on your paper. I want you to pray for them. I want you to look for those opportunities 
to show them that you care and to show them that God cares. And then as, as the time gets closer for, the, for life on loan and for the revival, I want you to invite them. Not just say, hey, this is going on. I want you to say, I want to bring you. I want you to come as my guest. I'll meet you in the parking lot. I'll drive you. Do what Jesus wants you to do. It's the Great Commission. To love God and to love others. As we stand, as we sing, just as I am.